Welcome back to the Engineering Dads podcast. I'm here with my usual co-host, James, but we also have another James um, with the podcast. It's Hello. James, James oh. Squared today. James Squared. James yeah. Squared. That's yeah. right. <laughs> um, so, yes, we, we usually try and start these uh, podcasts off kind of introducing yourselves, and we try and make it into a question which kind of helps you get the, I guess, the information a- across. Um, we've developed a new set of questions for that. So, um, who is someone you idolize? Oh, Oh man, um, probably Jacques Cousteau. Jacques Cousteau, not surprisingly, yeah. I've given a lot part of large part of my job is is diving, scuba diving, uh, and I've been doing that for many many years. So, um, yeah, when I was a kid, I remember watching all the Cousteau documentaries. This would be late nineteen seventies, early nineteen eighties. Which, whoops, I just gave my age away. But um, <laughs> yeah, uh, been here a while. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, yeah, Jacques Cousteau for sure. Perfect. So if you're stuck in an elevator with Jacques Cousteau and you had 20 seconds to explain what you do, yep. how would you explain it? Uh, I would say I do what he does. I dive, <laughs> but I investigate shipwrecks, uh, yeah. historic shipwrecks, and basically any vestige of the human past that is underwater. Wow, geez. How's yeah, that? That's very good. It's a very sh- actually an incredibly quick I elevator think I surprised ride. myself, yeah. actually. <laughs> well, I feel like that doesn't do it justice. We have some of your uh, resume, if we will. Yep. Um, so you are Dr. James Hunter the third. is that correct? That's correct. That's yep. correct. Fantastic name, by the way. Thank you. Um, yep. You are curator of the National uh, Heritage and Archaeology at the Australian National Maritime Museum. Um, master's in Historical Archaeology and a PhD in Marine Archaeology. Yep. 20-year career in my, uh, marine archaeology, including being involved in the teams for the HL Hunley, the first um, attack successful submarine. Is that That's the best? That's correct. Yep. Yeah. First, world's first successful combat submarine. That's incredible. Yep. We'll get into that, that one in a little bit. Oh, good. Yeah. Yep. You were also involved in Australia's first submarine, HMS AE-1, yep. um, as well as the HMB Endeavour, which is still ongoing. That's correct. Yep. yep. Um, according to Academia EDU, you have 39 credited research papers and four book chapters. Wow. I had no idea. <laughs> It's, See, I don't, don't keep track of this stuff. Yeah. I probably should. <laughs> and I mean, and quite an interesting one is that you are an avid diver with avid diver. Sorry, with the first claim of diving at the age of nine. That's correct. Yeah. Yep. And so I'm guessing you've kind of already answered the question, but what was the spark for this career? Like this is incredible. Oh yeah, I, I, it would have to be really um, us moving to Florida. So my father was in the military. Uh, we moved to Florida in 1977. Now, Dad grew up in the Midwest, mm-hmm. and when he was a kid in the 1950s, uh, he got obsessed with a show called Sea Hunt. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but it was a show that had Lloyd Bridges in it, and Lloyd Bridges was a diver, and he'd go all around the world and get into diving-related adventures. And my dad grew up with this show and was absolutely obsessed with scuba diving. So um, he went and served in the Vietnam War, came back, and had the opportunity to move to Florida. Mm-hmm. And he thought, well... That's where all the diving is. So, yeah, I'm going to do that. So we moved there in 77. And, I mean, as soon as Dad set foot there, he just got into it. Um, within a year, he had an instructor-level uh, uh, certification got in you diving. Into, got you into it as well? Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, because I, I grew up in that environment. And, you know, he made lots of friends that he went diving with. And I would go out on the boat with them, um, you know, at a very early age. And, yeah, so I could just kind of grew up in that environment and, and diving. And then... Um, When I was 11, we moved to the UK. Uh, Dad got assigned over there. And when he was over there, he got into wreck diving. So then he's diving on shipwreck sites. They're bringing things up, which, I mean, now as an archaeologist, you know, kind of questionable sort of stuff. (laughs) Sorry, Dad. I just dobbed you in. But, um, yeah, he, uh, you know, he was um, recovering stuff. And I I think that the combination of those things really kind of fired my imagination for it. Um, And then I ended up uh, going to university. Uh, started out again, anthropology degree, volunteered in the archaeology lab when I was there. So got really interested in material culture and, and archaeology. And uh, uh, if you'll humor me for a moment, so this is kind of a funny thing, but um, uh, right out of uh, undergrad, I got a job as a land archaeologist and I was doing oh, that. Wow. Uh, and I did that for a couple of years and then decided, ah, I should probably get a master's degree, you know, get, get yeah. a little bit higher education in my field. So uh, I went to the University of West Florida in Pensacola and I went to meet the head of the department. And she said, well, 
uh, look, we, we offer a few different things. Uh, we have some field schools coming up where we train you to do field methods, which I'd never done up to mm. that point. So thought that's a good idea. So she says, okay, um, you can either work on a 17th century Spanish fortification site, or you can work on a 16th century Spanish galleon. Was this off straight off the Amastas? No, this is me going into my master's program. Oh, I mean, yeah. that's a hell of a coin flip. Yeah. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah right. That's, that's a good but, but, but my response is probably instructive. And then yeah. I looked at her and I said, wait, you can do archaeology underwater? Because I had no idea. Right. Uh, I, I, I had been so sort of obsessed with land archaeology that mm. I had never even considered the fact I could do this underwater. And uh, she looked at me like I was insane, I think, or possibly <laughs> stupid. But anyway, um, what I settled on was they had a, a dual field school where you did um, six weeks on land and did six weeks underwater. Oh, that's perfect. So, right down the middle. So I did the six weeks on land. Again, 17th century Spanish fort site. Amazing. Uh, the area where I worked, it was actually part of the site was buried under a baseball field. And oh, we wow. were excavating under third base and there were three 17th century cannons that were buried in a pit under wow. this. Far out. Yeah. Jeez. Um, so then, yeah, I did that, but then uh, got done with that and did the six weeks on the shipwreck, and that was it. Yeah, uh, yeah. That, man, that sold me right there, and I never looked back. I just yeah. realized that's what I wanted to do. Something I got to ask before we get into like the the topics of the ships. As an archaeologist, like whenever you dig into a ground, you you don't know what's there. Do you hypothesize what might be there, and is there like a fear or like a level of excitement or worry that? You're either one not going to find what you're after, or on the flip side, you're going to find something. Yeah, no expectation. Yeah, no expectation. <laughs> yeah. Or do you, do you generally have an understanding of what you look for? I think I'm going to find this. Yeah, normally we do quite a bit of, um, and particularly with what I, I deal in is, is what's called historical archaeology. So we're dealing with sites that are associated with the historic period. Mm. So they're they're not prehistoric. Um, so there's a written record in many cases. And a lot of times, like if we're looking for a shipwreck, for example, uh, we'll do a fair bit of archival research, you know, getting into the archives, getting into newspapers and stuff from the period and trying to figure out where this thing might be. Um, so oftentimes we have kind of an indication of what we're going to encounter. Yep. But I can tell you, I've been on plenty of surveys where we were looking and we thought <laughs> it's got to be here. And it's it's not, you, you, yeah. you know, it, it doesn't end up being where you think it's going to be because whoever wrote the account had the location wrong or, yeah. or you know identified the wrong place um or often and there are many archaeologists out there who if they hear this will go i know what that guy's talking about <laughs> you do like you know a month worth of work looking for something and you find it on the last day and oh, then you're like scrambling to get <laughs> to everything to up. try yeah. to do some work yeah. yeah i mean it's like murphy's law it's like anything that can go wrong will, will go, go wrong. wrong and like it's like when you're trying to find something it's the last thing you're looking yeah. for yep. it's in the last spot but that's no, right that's great so i think that's a very good introduction actually i learned quite a bit <laughs> more on the research like it's always funny you research someone but when you hear it from their point of mm. view it's different different perspective but on the actual topic so there was the the hunley and the h match perth i believe is the two we wanted to sort of dive into so yeah a bit of a pun there james <laughs> sorry that? you wanted to dive into those topics yeah sorry so <laughs> i don't know if that was a purpose or not we do in the engineering <laughs> dads we tell dad joke puns but we pretend we don't know we, we pick them up oh okay right yeah <laughs> oh we do and we know they're horrible do you, do you guys have the like the rim shot sound like you know oh that actually was something we could build into that honestly yeah. <laughs> we'll look into that in our future ai podcast but yeah, yeah. okay so the hl hunley um obviously jump in if there's more but it's a confederate yeah. submarine during the american civil war that sank three times once during a test run <laughs> killing five members again in 1863 killing all eight of its crew and uh feb 1864 after an attack on the 1240 ton u.s navy screw sloop of war Houstonic. now could you like explain to us why there was only eight people manning this submarine like what was the uh really it has a lot to do with the size yeah it was small um and when i say small man um <laughs> it looked tiny on the I diagram the drawings, yeah. 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 <laughs> this little hand cranks so what uh, was everyone's role on this on this submarine i found that most interesting uh, <laughs> of of eight individuals on the submarine um seven of them their primary role was to propel it so the thing was hand cranked 
which is nuts if you think about it. Um, so the way this thing was arranged generally was you had um, you had two ballast tanks on either end, so bow stern um, that could be filled with water or could be pumped out, and that could help regulate you know its its um, position within the water column. Yep. Uh, between the two ballast tanks, you had what we called the crew compartment. So at the very front of the crew compartment, you have all the steering. Um, you know, all the control surfaces to control the rudder, to control the dive planes, um, to you know orient it up and down. And aft of that, you had a bench that ran along one side of the hull. Yep. And so seven of these guys sat next to each other on this bench all in a row, and in front of them was a hand crank. It had handles on it. Each of them had a handle, and so they cranked this thing. Um, and what we found, which we were not expecting, it was quite innovative, um, is that that hand crank uh, had two things that were quite remarkable for the 1860s. One, uh, the, we thought that the crank handles would be oriented roughly 90 degrees, you know, for each position. Oh, they were? They were not. They were oriented at angles in such a way that as half the crew were actually applying force, the other half were resting. So it was like a two-piston system. Oh, right. Kind of like the new bikes where the the strap would also lift as well as push down. Exactly. And then, so on top of that, which was mind-blowing, the crankshaft ran to the aft bulkhead, and there was a reduction gear system on there. So um, you had had the gear attached to the crankshaft. Yep. And then there was a chain drive attached to a larger flywheel. Yeah. And so what it did was that flywheel amplified right, their cranking okay. yeah. to so get maximum into torque. the propeller. Yeah, because yeah. yeah. that ran to the propeller. Yeah. Oh, interesting. I didn't realize that one had a gear shaft. I was, I yeah. was actually yeah. thinking about that because when I saw 2.6 kilowatts is being generated, I was like, how is that thing moving through the sea? Like that's like you said, it's in very the slow. Here, your yeah. electric skateboard runs off 2.6 yeah, kilowatts. It has a 1.8 kilowatt motor. <laughs> so to have, well, what I found funny was it was seven people and it produced three and a half horsepower. Is that saying that humans have half a horsepower in each person? Yeah, yeah. like that, that backwards calculation. I, I don't think I, I think if there's two of me, we could take out a horse, but yeah. an interesting kind of a metric of force, even yeah. in those days. Yeah, That's absolutely. before energy drinks were developed. So yeah, yeah, <laughs> possibly before yeah, um, caffeine was discovered. So in, into the research side of that. So that was rediscovered in 1995, I believe. And just, yep. just take us through, it, it sank. And what research has been done to sort of allude to why it sank yeah so it was found in 1995 as you say um there were efforts to try to recover it uh so there was a lot of planning that went into that and funny little side note there was also a bit of disagreement over who owned it and where it was going to stay because it was in the waters of south carolina uh, the state of south carolina um however um at the end of the Civil War, all Confederate vessels became the property of the United States government right. as of the course, victor yeah. of the conflict. Yeah. So there was some discussion early on in the piece that uh, if the Hunley were recovered, it would go to the Smithsonian or it would go up to Washington, D.C. and yeah. go to a cultural institution there. Well, there was a lot of blowback from South Carolina yeah. about that because, um, you know, they weren't going to see their, you know, uh, lovely Confederate submarine get taken up to Yankee land. We're not going to have that. right? Yeah. So, <laughs> so there was a bit of disagreement over where the submarine was going to end up and who was going to fund it and, who, you know, who was going to do the work. And ultimately, uh, the, the deal that was reached was that it is recognized as being the property of the United States government. Mm. However... It will remain in South Carolina yeah. in perpetuity. It, yeah. will, it will never leave. Cultural significance of it. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, so anyway, once they'd sort of worked all that out, um, the submarine was recovered in 2000 mm-hmm. in August, uh, which is just before I was finishing grad school. So the timing was quite good here. Um, and what they did was uh, they they put a truss system over the top of the submarine, lowered that down to the seabed, and then there were a series of slings. And so what they did is they started at the bow and they excavated beneath the submarine and they installed these slings underneath it as they went. And each one of these slings had a bag that could be filled with a foam that would set up underwater. And so as they got all the slings into position, they got the bags in, they filled them up so it would form fit the hull. So, oh, gotcha, and then gotcha. they would tension yeah. the slings up. They had turnbuckles, they'd tension them up and they all had monitors on them. So there would be no 
all force being applied on the subs hull would be equal. So there would yeah. be no yeah. damage that they could break it during yeah, the lift. Yeah, no and, too much stress and in one single point. Exactly. So once they did that, uh, they then recovered the truss with the submarine, put it on a barge, brought it into Charleston uh, to a purpose-built conservation lab uh, where it was then brought in and put into a tank hmm. uh, with the whole truss set up. Everything was put in there. And then that tank was designed uh, to be filled um, when people were not working on it. But then when we went in to actually work on the on the sub, they would drain all the water out of the tank. Yeah. And then we could go down there and we would excavate it like a land site, basically. Um, so now, a, bit, a bit of like a pilot site in a way, like a bit of a pilot sort of area where you're testing and all that sort of stuff or was it um no the warehouse that we put it in uh it was for the navy i don't know what it was intended for originally but uh whatever the navy intended to do with it they didn't uh so this warehouse was just a big blank slate basically go go for it do what you need to do yeah and (laughs) and so we just had the you know the the building and so we were able to custom develop a conservation lab um, from the ground up, yeah. which was great because yeah. and everything in that lab, it was awesome. It was all stainless steel, modular tables, everything could be moved, <laughs> all this equipment, you know, microscopes and analyze, you know, devices for analyzing material. And there was a walk-in uh, cold storage area um, where we could keep uh, artifacts and ultimately human remains because we found the crew. Mm. Uh, so it was an amazing place um, to, to come into right out of grad school. Um, yeah, but one of the issues that we had was the submarine was actually intact um, by yeah. and large. So we had to get into it. And, um, oh, right. They're not really designed to be tampered with from the outside. No. And, and <laughs> now there, there were two entrance and egress points on the sub. There were two conning towers, you know, one mm. at the forward end, one at the aft end. Uh, but those hatches were really, really narrow. So there was no way we were going to be, you know, wiggling our way down in there and, and doing, um, you know, excavation work. So... The plan that was settled on was we, it was a welded structure. It's a weld, welded iron structure. So what we did is we actually drilled the rivets out on some of the plates and actually removed them right. and took them off. And then we could excavate. And it was yeah. great because it was like excavation pits, you know, these yeah. nice little squares and we could just work our <laughs> way down. And it was completely full of sediment. That was the mind-blowing thing. That's, that's what I was going to ask. So yeah. Being full of sediment, taking rivets and stuff off, were there concerns that it would be damaged in like the excavation process or pulling it apart? Yeah, there was concern about that. Uh, there was a lot of analysis uh, and documentation that went into it before that happened. Yeah. Um, because, yeah, we, we didn't know what we were getting into. Mm. Uh, and there was concerns that if we tried to remove this plate, it might be attached to some mechanism in the submarine. It would be damaged. So there was a lot of X-ray uh, work that was done. And basically, the areas were isolated based on what the X-ray data came back yeah. with. And, uh, yeah, I mean, the rivets were kind of sacrificed because they were drilled through to remove yeah. them. But they were documented extensively before any of that stuff was was yeah. taken off. And one of the cool things we did with Hunley, um, and it was really one of the first in archaeology, was the use of scanning, uh, laser scanning. Right. Okay. Yeah. So I guess some in the of the two thousands that wasn't that common at the time. No. So, so we were using some of the first gen uh, laser scanners wow, on that wreck, um, which was pretty awesome. I mean, actually. Like, yeah, laser scanning can be used for a lot now. Like one of the popular things is three D modeling and three D scanning. But mm. was it being used for that it back then, or was it had to have a different purpose? No, we we did. We uh, we were able to render three D models uh, out of the laser scan data. Yeah. Brilliant. I mean, nothing. You know, looking at how it's developed so much since mm. then. Um, you know, we didn't uh, we didn't have the same level of accuracy. Um, we didn't have that really nice photorealistic imagery that you get now. Yeah. Uh, I think the the 3D model that we rendered was like had this weird sort of yellow and red and green. It, yeah. it looked very bizarre. <laughs> um, but but we could see the shape of the hull and and we had a really nice point cloud. And so it, you know it was it was probably as accurate as we could yeah. get for the time gives yeah. you all the grounds to study it but yeah that's I, I did have a few questions yeah. on the 3d modeling but before that the way this ship sunk you, like you said it was found intact yes um and it sunk after it shot its torpedo how what is the mechanism behind the ship sinking all eight members died but the ship remained intact yeah okay so <laughs> <laughs> funny thing about mid-19th century torpedoes um that term was used in the 1860s 
but it's not what we think of when we think of a torpedo. Mm. Uh, we think of torpedoes, we think of what are called self-propelled or motive torpedoes. You know, they got a little prop on the back and they go zipping off and, and blow things up a long way away. Torpedoes in the mid-19th century were mines, so stationary mines. Um, so the way the Hunley's torpedo system worked was you had the bow end, and there was a metal spar. So it was a, a shaft, like a long metal uh, hollow shaft that came off the bow mm. about roughly five meters in length uh, around there. And at the very end of that was an explosive charge, a canister of black powder. Jeez. And what you did... And on the end of that was a trigger mechanism. So what you did was you saw your target and you went, all right, guys, let's go. And exactly. And you rammed that charge into the side of the hull and it detonated. Okay. Right. So the long and the short of that is there was about a five, well, a bit longer than that, maybe six to seven meter distance between the detonation site and the first crew member in that submarine. So that yeah. pressure wave just would have knocked him and out. And knocked them underwater, like depth charges, uh, the bane of existence of submarines, mm. and they're exploding at a much further distance away with more power. But yeah. water is incompressible realistically at that distance. Yeah. So that explosion went straight through. Yeah. But the fact that it stayed together is incredible. Yeah. yeah. So it's knocked everyone out. They've probably died on impact. No one's there to operate their ship, so it's just going, oh, okay, I guess I'm just going to sink because no one's moving me, but everyone in there is effectively gone. Yeah, there's um, the jury is still out. Uh, they're still doing research and still trying to determine what happened. But I, when I was there, at least, sort of looking at the data that we had at the time, the best scenario that made sense is what you're saying. There was an explosion. We don't know how big the charge was. Um, it, historical accounts vary from 50 pounds of black powder up to 200 pounds of black Jeez. powder. I mean, that's a fair <laughs> wallop. A I mean, you know, and as you say, um, you know, these guys, and you have to understand these guys didn't understand uh, underwater ballistics. Like, they didn't understand that. Yeah. Um, Number one, you know, that blast wave underwater is quite powerful, um, you know, equally, if not more so, as a, an explosion on land. But the other issue here is that you've got a pressure wave moving through the water, and then it hits an air pocket, and it accelerates because yeah. there's less yeah. resistance. Yeah. yeah. So it goes through the, you know, submarine very rapidly, and it only makes sense that it would have either incapacitated or killed the crew outright yeah um you know it just would have rang their bell um and so now you have a submarine that's got an incapacitated and or dead crew just kind of floating on the surface because they attacked on the surface yeah they were just underneath right yep that's right and well they had yeah they'd been oh, i can get into this in a minute <laughs> yeah. but they, they had been ordered to attack on the land or uh, oh. on the surface rather um because they had, <laughs> you know, uh, lost prior crews uh, yep. from submerging. So um, that times the charm. <laughs> that's right. So these guys are floating on the surface, um, and understanding that within that crew compartment, it's a very confined space. You mm. can't. So if you know this guy next to you is knocked out and he's you know kind of over his crank, you guys can't go anywhere. He can't be moved out of the way, Jeez. and you can't maneuver. You can't do anything. Yeah. Um, and there's another aspect to this, too, and that is the possibility that one of the ships that came to assist the Housatonic actually ran the sub over. Oh, so that is that, wait, that's one of the theories? That's right. one of the theories that's out there. Um, yeah, because Housatonic, there were several ships, there was a blockade, there was a yeah. Union blockade of Charleston Harbor, so you had multiple ships that were, that were moored out there. Uh, when Housatonic was attacked, they started firing flares, distress yeah, flares. Yeah. And so other ships came to assist Housatonic. And there is the possibility that one of those ships actually hit the sub. Because if it was just kind of floating in the water... At nighttime, too. Is at night, night attack. has a very low profile. Yeah. They wouldn't have seen it. They probably hit it and didn't even realize they ran it over. Jeez. It's one of those things. <laughs> um, but there is also the possibility that... Uh, you know, some of the plates could have been slightly dislodged, like, you know, the, the sub was intact, certainly, yeah. but uh, there could have been some yeah. dislodging of the of the plates. Uh, I mean, then, yeah, like even yeah. a little love tap could have just, like you said, dislodged the plates, yep. mm. sink the sub and, you know, over, a, what is it, over 100 years to find the ship and you've picked it up. 
surely there'd be like a little rust or a little loss of, of something on the ship. You wouldn't be able to tell if that little mm. bit of damage was there. So That's it's right. hard mm. to make that conclusion. Yeah. Brilliant. And it, but, you know, one of the key factors in this is that in looking at the remains of the crew, because they were all in there, yeah. um, there's no struggle. Right. Uh, looking at how the remains were oriented within the hull, uh, there's no co-mingling. All of their remains were in their positions. Mm. So there was no evident struggle for these guys to try to get out of the submarine. Uh, okay. And you can imagine if water is flooding into this thing. It's panicked. And they're, yeah. Yeah, they're, and, and they're awake. Yeah. <laughs> they're going to try to do everything. Because that's what happened in the prior two sinkings. Yes. Uh, there was clear evidence that um, they were trying to get out and mm. they were struggling to get out. Uh, that's not evident here. So that seems to indicate that the guys had died um, probably before water really started to flood into the submarine. Um, and a few different things could have happened. Uh, they could have been out killed outright by the explosion uh, or the submarine still largely full of air uh, mm. would have settled, could have sunk, settled to the bottom uh, and then those that were still alive, uh, eventually, you Went know, the, sleep, the yeah. oxygen just, yeah, yeah, ran out and, and they, they expired by basically passing out. Um, oh, and yeah. So, but you know, it's, there's one of the issues we have with archeology span sometimes is, you know, we can, we can hypothesize and, and get through the sequence of events up to a point. Hmm. And then it's kind of hard sometimes to jump beyond that area. to know yeah. exactly everything. There's that nothing happened. with certainty. There's always yep. a bit of a caveat or bit yep. of a risk that you put yeah. into anything yep. you're studying. But and yeah, it's gone. I was just saying, as long as you could provide evidence of why you think a certain direction, that makes sense. I feel like if you can back up your claims with, well, this is the information we found that they've all passed away peacefully, we don't imagine it's a sinking yeah. or potentially yeah. a hit. So yeah. it could, yeah. Maybe we don't have the exact answer, but you can get in the right ballpark. Yeah. But closing the gap on that now, you, you brought up before how the 3D software was sort of used you know, when you were studying the Hunley. Hmm. You, you had this nice point cloud survey, a couple of images getting the, the shape. In the 3D modeling world now, we're seeing this rise of models being used in every industry and how it's helping engineers, builders, scientists to study, to implement projects and all this sort of stuff. In, in your field of marine archaeology, how much with modern technology is this helping compared to conventional methods like simply diving, taking videos and trying to study the site and, and bring things up? Like theoretically, you could leave something in its spot, not touch it, mm. do a point cloud survey, get the 3D model, take it back to surface and then study that. Yeah. What are the opportunities like in terms of being able to draw conclusions to your research with that? Oh, it's been immensely helpful. Mm. Um for starters, it's it's quite accurate. Uh, I mean, I'm a big fan of mapping wreck sites by hand. Uh, I, I learned that way, yep. you know, getting out there with tapes and slates and writing, you know, measurements underwater and then coming back and drafting everything out. Yep. Uh, I'm still a firm believer in that because I think it helps you understand a site better if you're having to interact with it on that level. But having said that, um, you know, the stuff that they're doing nowadays with uh, 3D photogrammetry, with laser scanning, with structured light scanning, mm. uh, that stuff is insanely accurate. I mean, it's more accurate yeah. than we could ever do with, with, a, yeah. you know, with, with a tape and, you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> um, so it, it's immensely helpful from that perspective um it also you know generates this really nice photorealistic image of yep. a rack site and that stuff can be really compelling um particularly if you're trying to share that that site or what you're doing with the public and, and mm -hmm. with your peers um and a really good example actually um of of us doing this sort of work is hms ae1 yeah in PNG. Um, so that rec site was found in December of 2017. And we went back in April of 2018. And the wreck's in over 300 meters of water. So we're not diving that one. That's a bit uh, too deep. That's yeah. right. We can't get to it. Um, so we had to do everything remotely. So what we had was we had a, a, a work class remotely operated vehicle that had a camera on it. And it went down and it shot a series of you know, digital images yep. of this wreck that were then rendered into a 3D model of the wreck site. And the the resolution was so good uh, and, and the imagery that it generated was so good that it actually helped us interpret what had happened to that submarine. 
um, and the nice thing was single diver onto it. Yeah, well, I mean, we were actually watching it in the control room on the ship while it's you know doing wow. its doing its photogrammetric runs, and that was great. Um, and the really nice thing too is that a lot of times, you know, um, and man, any anyone who does what I do can can tell you this is right. Um, depending on the conditions, when you're working on a wreck, you're often just in one section and the water clarity might not be great. Yeah. So you're working in one area. So you know that area very well, but oftentimes you don't see the bigger picture. You don't see the whole wreck. Yeah. And that 3D model we made of AE-1 was the only way we could see that shipwreck in its entirety. Jeez. Where we could see the whole thing and then we were able to look at it and go, oh, the whole front end of this thing imploded. Yeah. Yeah. And, and but the aft end didn't implode. So what's going on there? You know, and so we were able to start seeing these things and that helped us develop a sequence of events as to what happened yeah. to the sub. So one of my follow-on questions, and this is not something I'm expecting any of us to be able to answer today. It's more so what are your thoughts on this? We're seeing this rise of AI and machine learning in yeah. every industry, especially with generating photos like for example, you go and take a photo of half of the Eiffel Tower in Paris yeah. and an AI can feel and goes, this is what it's supposed to look like. Coming a bit more specific in, in this industry, if you send a camera down with a machine learning module to do a 3D model, in theory, you know, what, what are your thoughts on something that could potentially build a model and try and explain a story of what might have happened, you know, helping out the researchers to go, look, this is, this is the model. This is what the ship looks like. This is what could have happened, giving you a series of examples. Is that something that you reckon would be explored in? Or would they rely more on the, I guess, research or the person with experience to draw that conclusion? I mean, I think it's, you know, let's face it, we're, we're headed that way. We're already mm. there, actually, in many <laughs> yeah. respects. Um, I certainly don't have an issue with the idea that you could have, you know, a level of AI that might give you different scenarios mm. for what, you know, for example, led to the loss of a shipwreck site. But yeah. I think that... Um, I think that you still have to have sort of that human element yeah. to it where someone's still looking at the data and, you know, saying, well, okay, that's a, that's a possible scenario, but what about this? And yeah. that seems to rule that scenario out. Or, oh, have we considered this scenario, which may not have been included among the ones that were provided? Yeah. So, um, I mean, a lot of the wrecks that I've worked on, you know, it, it's kind of funny how it evolves sometimes you know we 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 get data we uh can make some fairly rapid conclusions you know within days or weeks um of doing the work but sometimes things come along later mm. um yeah you know you get a critical piece of information uh, let's say you get artifacts that are recovered and they're they're encased in marine growth and concretion yeah. and they take that concretion apart and then they find this artifact and go oh yeah. whoa wait hold on we didn't know about that a bit of a cold case yeah <laughs> and that and that when you add that piece into what's going the rest of it you go ah okay that's what's happening uh yeah, so right. I, I think with a with ai an ai platform it might not do that no it might not mm. detect that so not our not our understanding of ai anyway yeah yeah, like it's, yeah. It, it's a good tool to help fill the gaps but it's not going to make yeah. the so, final jump yeah, yeah. where yeah. i've seen, seen machine learning be great in 3d modeling is being able to sequence things so yeah. i think looking at the h the h mass perth for example where you had sort of three shots, 1967, yep. late 1970s and 2009 and, and seeing what had changed between each, you know, things had been salvaged, yep. torpedo holes had got a bit bigger, all that sort of stuff and AI can paint a picture of what happened. So it's not telling you, oh, I'm thinking this is what happened to the ship but you're putting the inputs in and it's drawing yeah. like the, some of the, yeah, the conclusions. Animation yeah. Or a conclusion yeah. Interpolating the data. Yeah. I mean, I think that would be, there is some use there because, you know, we we could capture a 3d model of the wreck you know from 2017 when mm. we made our first survey but yeah you're right going back to you know the 1960s when the wreck site was found or the 1970s when these objects were salvaged well we can't do that because yeah. you know photogrammetry didn't exist or at least 3d photogrammetry um you know and and nobody was doing that sort of thing so maybe yeah. that's a way to to kind of fill that gap yeah because what happened there i was looking into one of your papers in like 2013 so it was commercially salvaged and a lot of things got taken from that ship did that that would have been, had a massive impact on on your work right oh it did um and it was that was alarming i mean you know in my biz we're used to you know commercial salvage of shipwreck sites but a lot of the time at least up until that point the focus had been on precious metals so it was carrying gold silver that sort of thing um 
you know, artifacts associated with an iconic shipwreck like Titanic, you know, yeah. oh, anything off Titanic. Woo, sweet. We got to get that. hundred <laughs> um, percent. Yeah. yeah. So we were used to that and, you know, it's not ideal obviously, but, um, but there was sort of a limited impact. What was happening to Perth though, was that it was wholesale removal of the wreck. I mean, because they were targeting the metal that the ship was made of. It wasn't, we want little bits and, you know, trophy objects and stuff. No, so we they've, want- they've damaged the ship in the process by taking structural metal, yeah. right? And then that's, that would have impacted like, whether knowing it was World War II, because this is a World War II ship, mm. this is going to impact knowing whether it's a damage from World War II or if someone's gone in there and actually damaged well, recently, it. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And, and I mean, we're talking wholesale harvesting here. It was, it was alarming. I, we couldn't believe it. Um, Perth, you know, roughly 70% of that shipwreck was destroyed Jeez. through that, through that action. There are other wreck sites in the Java Sea. Uh, there were some British ships, some Dutch ships that were in the battle, the, you know, battle of Java Sea. Um, and well, I'll give you, a, I can't remember the name of the ship off the top of my head, but it was, you know, 8,000 ton cruiser, it completely disappeared. <laughs> they removed it and, and all there was, and I'm not making this up because I saw the, um, the multi-beam sonar data. Yeah. Uh, there was a ship-shaped divot in the seabed God. and that was it. <laughs> and prior to that, this thing had been intact. Everything was on it and it gone. Basically, In a, in a period of how long, sorry? <laughs> Uh, I mean, they started seeing, um, I think the salvage activity started to really become apparent in probably 2012, 2013. Um, and up through about 2017, uh, yeah, th there were multiple wrecks that were removed in this manner. And you'd find a conning tower on an island somewhere. Like oh, I mean, <laughs> well, no, I mean, the, they were taking it as scrap and... Uh, they were going to processing centers on land, and then it was all just getting shipped out, and then it was being surely recycled. there's cheaper ways to get recycled metal. Yeah, yeah, and I mean that's so we have a theory about this. Oops, sorry, it's quite a, quite an interesting theory. I mean, there are a few different theories out there really as to why they were doing this, but one of the prevailing ones is that they were interested in the metal because it's what's called low background metal. Um, so. Everything after the first atomic bomb detonation in 1945 um, has some level of radiation contamination. Yeah. Everything's contaminated by radiation. You, me, this table, yeah. everything. Um, and so these ships are different because they sank. You know, they were, they were produced before the first A-bomb, yeah. and they sank before the A-bomb. Yeah. Right. So they don't have that level of radioactive contamination. So that metal is rare. incredibly <laughs> rare, rare, yeah, and because they use it in all sorts of really sensitive equipment and, and clean rooms, you know, where you manufacture stuff like, yeah, they, all that. So that was that's kind of the prevailing theory as to why Jeez. these wrecks were being salvaged. Because yeah. why would you go to the trouble to recover, you know, at that point, 75-year-old corroded yeah. metal? Makes no sense. Yeah. Why not take a more modern ship yeah, if you want stronger the actual salvage and, value? Yeah, yeah. So when you guys are sitting around the table and someone asks, hey, wars don't make money, you go, well, actually, let me tell you about H. They sure do. Yeah. And, you know, sadly, it's ramping up again. It had stopped for a while. COVID had kind of put an end to it for a while. But two wrecks off Malaysia, the Prince of Wales and the Repulse, which are two British battlecruisers, battleship, there, uh, they got hammered really hard um, oh, in the lead up, and then COVID happened, and everything just kind of stopped for a while. But we have recently heard that they're being salvaged again, and I mean, it's horrific. It's horrific because on a number of levels, uh, one, you know, as an archaeologist, it's, yeah. you're destroying the archaeological value, but that doesn't necessarily mean that much to to everybody. Mm. Um, then there's the aspect that a lot of these wreck sites are war graves. They're not officially declared as war graves, but they have the remains Obviously, of their yeah, crews yeah. who sank with them. So it, it's it's grave desecration, basically, which is pretty horrific. Mm. But the other aspect of this, which I think is far more uh, wide-reaching, is that all of these ships, to some level, have contaminants in the form of fuel oil, yeah. unexploded ordnance, all of these things. And 
if you breach the hull on one of these ships, it just spills its contents out. And they've got satellite imagery of some of these wrecks where there's these massive oil slicks because they've just opened them up and they're dumping their contents everywhere. Yeah. So that's an environmental issue. Mm. Um, and that has huge knock-on effects for a lot of these countries where in the case of Perth, for example, in Indonesia, um, that wreck was a habitat for marine life. And there were local subsistence fishermen. That's how they live. Right. They live by fishing on that wreck. Well, if you completely remove it, yeah. the habitat's the gone. Moves, yeah. All the fish leave. Not to mention you've just dumped a bunch of you know, fuel, oil, contaminants into the water. And also now there's, uh, you know, unexploded ordnance laying around everywhere. Lying, that's, yeah. You know, somebody brings, you know, a, a four inch or six inch shell up in their net and <laughs> kaboom, you know. Uh, so it's, it's really awful on a lot of different levels. And when we were making the push to get Perth protected by the Indonesian yeah. government, that was one of the things that we really said. We said, look, you know, it's important to us as a heritage site. But there's a broader implication here, which is that it's affecting the people who subsist off of this yeah. wreck. It's, you know, presenting a an environmental issue. And we also, and I don't think this was unreasonable to point out. The other thing we brought up is we said, well, look, you've got all this unexploded ordnance on this wreck. Um, Indonesia has had a long, you know, standing sort of terrorism issue. Uh, and we said, look, this stuff is still capable of being detonated. And if people go in and just grab a whole bunch of these unexploded shells and an wire them in, bomb. yeah, turn yeah. it into a, you know, improvised explosive device. Yeah. It's going to do some damage. Yeah. So, um, luckily, you know, and we kind of approached it from more that angle than the heritage angle. Mm. And I, I think that ended up being quite effective mm. uh, because they did, they declared it as a protected zone. Um, and right. we're happy to say that. Although there's only about 30% of the wreck left, um, oh, it's, it's been left alone yeah. since then. Um, so I, I, it's a bit of a win. You yeah. know, it's kind of deflating because <laughs> I've, seen, I've seen video and photos of that wreck before it got salvaged, and it was intact. Yeah, it was Everything. like 60% intact or something. More than that. It? I would say more than that. I would say All it was right. closer to 80 to 90. Oh, it was, Crap. and that, yeah. got, that thing got hit by about what was it? Four torpedoes. The, yeah, yeah, that's right. Multiple, multiple shell impacts. Um, but you know, I've, you know, all the turrets were there. Um, yeah. You know, the the superstructure, the hull was intact. You could see the areas of damage from the battle quite clearly at that time. Um, but now, you know, it, it looks like a three sided box, yeah. and it, not much is recognizable. Yeah, that's a little very, very sad. But mm. I wanted to sort of touch on how intact it was. One of the questions I was, one of the curiosities I had is, it's great we have naval history, you know, to to be able to tell a story of why things happen when it happened. But finding a ship that's almost like you said, eighty to ninety percent intact, but it got hit by so many torpedoes, can we use that knowledge in, I guess, construction of naval warships today to say, well, look, this ship remained intact. It got hit by torpedoes. This was the structural principle. This is how we can protect the ship. Are we using history to rebuild our ships today and figure out what went wrong, what didn't to make sure, you know, if in a hypothetical war scenario, we got hit again, mm. our ships wouldn't sink on, on the first few impacts? Oh, yeah, I absolutely think that that happens. Um, you know, every time there's a major conflict, um, there's a lot of trial and error going on mm. and, and you know, there's wartime experience. You know, some things can be quite theoretical in terms of ship design and, yeah. and weaponry and this sort of thing. But until you actually use it in practice uh, and you see how, for example, a, a ship is going to cope if it gets hit by a torpedo or shell fire or, you know, how this torpedo is going to operate if you launch it or, you mm. know. Um, yeah, I, I think that everything that we have today is the result of, yeah. prior conflict and and seeing how all of those things sort of um uh, operated and responded yeah but we have the ability to look at a ship that's look at a shipwreck now see that it's still intact and go it didn't get destroyed in this it's still intact in this area because of this design like we can look at that and draw a conclusion or is it very gray because you know corrosion has happened it's it's been salvaged like you've been mentioning yeah uh i mean if the site's been relatively un untouched um then yeah I, I think the the less affected the wreck site has been the more you can get out of it yeah uh, when you start getting 
you know, other factors involved like natural degradation uh, and, and any sort of human, um, you know, um, influence uh, damage. Yeah, that, that starts to sort of change the equation a bit. And it, yeah. you can't make as strong a determination about certain things. Yeah. Awesome stuff. Uh, I'll jump to a, a bit of a, a sideways, a tangential question. So this is a bit more broad. Yep. Um, so we always keep talking about space being the final frontier. Yep. But the oceans are relatively unexplored. How do you explain to an average person how broad and un- unexplored the oceans are? Oh, um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was for a minute. It's one real spot. big. Yeah. Um, no, was, well, actually, I was at a, um, I was at an event last night because they've got the, um, they've got a big uh, convention here in Sydney at the moment, uh, International uh, uh, Congress of Monuments and Sites, and um, so we had an event here at the museum last night, and there was a guy here from Geoscience Australia, and it was talking about seabed mapping. And I think if I've got this right, uh, he said that there is, of all the seabed around Australia that falls within the country's um, territorial waters and everything, 20% has been mapped. And that's that's it. On the coast as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, it's uh, it's pretty remarkable, actually, um, given that, you know, Australia has a massive marine estate. Uh, that only 20%. And that's that's one country. And that's, yeah. you know, a fairly well-off country that has a capability to do that kind of mapping. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you're talking about a really, really, really infinitesimally small percentage of mm. the world world's oceans have been mapped to any degree. Uh, so, yeah, it's... I find it's always, like baffled me that we're, we're one little dot in space and we know more about the wider uni- the wider known universe <laughs> than go. we do the, the open space between between our oceans yeah. and i feel like it's it's great i love space but yeah. I, yeah i would love to have that same level of knowledge of what's down there yeah. and what's up up in the sky yeah and, and we can get to that stuff too like you, you know mm. you can see a galaxy that's 13 billion light years away we're never getting to that yeah. But we can get to anywhere in the ocean. Yeah. I mean, well, yes and no. Yes and like, okay. So <laughs> the, it's risky. Yeah. But this is actually a, a podcast we did like a year back. This is when we yeah. first started during COVID. A theoretical COVID. one. We're doing this for fun back in yeah. the day. So like, let's just record some yeah. stuff. And, and yeah, we had, I had an a, argument. <laughs> I had an argument because the argument was, what is more difficult? Living at the bottom of the ocean at the deepest part or on the moon? Mm. And I said the ocean was much harder. It was Mars. Like, well, I think it was Mars, but either way. Yeah. Well, yeah, I I still believe getting things to the bottom of the ocean under that level of pressure is mm. almost impossible. Mm. Whereas Mars, you have low pressure and then sun. So I think. Well, maybe this is a question for you now. What do you believe is harder to be at the bottom of the ocean or the in outer space? I mean, I, I think they both have their own yes. respective course, difficulties, yeah. but pressure is certainly an issue. Mm. Um, you know, it's. Well, I mean, we recently heard about what had happened to the Titan submersible. Yeah, uh, it's, and, and that's the thing. That's the thing about the deep ocean. It is unforgiving. Not that space is necessarily forgiving, but, mm. um, you know, well, I mean, imagine if what happened on Apollo 13 had happened in the deep ocean. Yeah. They're dead. Gone. All of them. Yeah. Boof, gone. Because it would have imploded. I mean, yeah. you know, you had that sort of breach or whatever in the hull structure. Yeah. Uh, they're done. So... Yeah, I, I I do tend to sort of maybe lean a little bit more that direction with the with the deep ocean, but I count that as a win. <laughs> on, my argument was Mars is easy. Your argument was the seafloor was harder. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, your argument with the seafloor was easier. No, my C, my argument with seafloor was harder. We're gonna go, we're gonna go back in the yeah. podcast and hear, <laughs> but I stand by it. I, I would I would disagree. I would say it would be easier to get to the bottom of the ocean than to get to Mars. You think of the actual like scale and scope to get some just one robot we've only got what like a handful of robots to mars versus getting something at the bottom of the ocean i think it would be much easier to get habitats down there than onto mars cheeky Um, cheeky all right go on oh well this is again kind of broad spectrum but i like your cheeky question um what is a common misconception about your job that you would like to air out and iron out right now? Okay. Um, <laughs> it sounds like you've got a list. Level of difficulty. Uh, you know, I, I think sometimes, um, you know, uh, some people think that you know, I just go out and splash around in the ocean and have a good old time, you know. <laughs> and I mean, certainly. There's some elements that, I, you know, yeah. that part of my job I, I love a lot. And yeah. I, I love being in the water and, and working underwater. It's a lot of fun for me. Um, mm-hmm. It's never a dull moment. 
Um, but I think a lot of people don't understand how much work goes into it, uh, not only during the field work when we're working underwater, but also in the lead up to that. And then oh, the planning would be work. just yeah. the safety, yeah. just making sure you can get oh, down yeah. there, survive it. Yeah. You're not going to get sick, all that stuff. Yeah. I, I mean, mean, our, our risk assessments are, are pages long. Yeah. And, and oh, we're, and we're, I mean, we're imagining every possible contingency from, you know, things that can, you know, bitey's getting you in the water to yeah. getting sunstroke to, you know, oh, the engine on your boat goes out and, you know, you're set adrift. I mean, we have to consider all these things. And, yeah. uh, and, and the truth is the chances of any one of them happening are probably remote, but you got to be prepared. The work has to be done. Just, it just has know. to be that yeah. control that says, look, this is the risk. It's high. What's my control measure? Oh, cool. Yep. Is that yeah. put in place? Does it work? Is it to standard? Yeah. Done. Yeah. Like, and that's how you... Because, yeah, hopefully nothing goes wrong. But when something does, you want to show that you had a plan in yeah. place and you could follow it and steps were taken ahead yeah. of time. I mean, because, you know, we've... And, and it all depends on, you know, each site is different. You know, mm. uh, you know, deeper sites will, you know, you're dealing with decompression issues, you know, and, and potentially getting decompression illness and embolism and all these other things that you might not necessarily have with a shallow water site. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, this wreck might be in a protected area, you know, where it, you don't have to worry about, you know, high seas and current and that sort of thing. Um, the wreck that we're, we've been working with down in South Australia at Robe is a really good example of that. Um, in that it's it's in the smack bang in the middle of this bay um you know along along the shoreline and that bay is open to the west completely and it's down in the southeastern part of south australia you know getting down towards the roaring 40s uh so anything down there that's coming out of the west uh, southwest northwest and even if we're being honest due south or north you can't work there because it just generates this massive swell that pushes yeah. into this bay and i mean we've <laughs> we've been down there multiple times and some total i'm not kidding of diving we've managed to do so far as a day and a half you know? Out of how many days? Oh, well, we've made multiple trips down there. We've made four trips down there now. Oh, jeez. Uh, and, you know, just getting on the water to yeah. work sometimes is incredibly difficult. Um, I mean, a good example, I think I was talking to you about this earlier, but we, you know, we went down, uh, we were running a magnetometer, so we were looking for this wreck, um, and we had really nice conditions. Um, swell was maybe a half meter to a meter nice gentle rolling through uh, got our survey work done and we talked about diving because we picked this mag target up and we thought ah you know maybe this is it maybe we should put divers in and i got to make the call and i said no 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 because i looked at the weather forecast i said let's continue doing our survey we'll get all that out of the way we should be able to bring someone in tomorrow get some yeah. get some people in the water and have a look around because weather forecast was looking promising well the weather forecast changed um very quickly and as it does in the ocean <laughs> yeah uh, and two days later where we had been surveying it was breaking four to five meters yeah. where it had been absolutely slick i think people <laughs> underestimate how big that actually is yeah, yeah. it massive you know and we couldn't operate in that it would be you know deadly honestly yeah. um it, you know we were standing on shore looking at where the site was because we buoyed it you know it's you know we're watching we see the buoy and <laughs> just, it just disappears in the white water our yeah. jaws are underground we're just going oh yeah, basically, man basically in the drake passage at that point yeah you know it's yeah. terrifying uh so i mean that's a that's a good example of you know yeah. it just depends on the conditions of where you're working and and um each site is different so we have to we have to plan accordingly yeah, yeah. and the roaring 40s is something as a renewable engineer i love because it's reliably unreliable with mm. wind yeah whereas i imagine in your field it's the most annoying thing to deal with <laughs> <laughs> where a lot of the boats did sink and you go oh, damn it oh, yeah. <laughs> well there's a reason that they're wrecked there yeah, yeah exactly you, yeah. yeah it all makes sense yeah yeah. Awesome. Okay. Cheeky question as we near the the end of the of the show. Okay. Okay. So hypothetically, purely hypothetically, you could go to a wreck and salvage anything that you want and restore it to full condition. So you've got whatever technology there is to restore it to brand new. What do you salvage? And by the way, there's no consequences to this. In, oh, okay. In this hypothetical right. scenario. Um, ooh, man. Oh, that's a hard one. <laughs> that's a good question. <laughs> it is a really good question. Um, 
I don't know. So like in, in fantasy world, I can find a shipwreck basically, you know, that I'm really interested in. But, but it's got to be, what, what has to be realistic is stuff that you've found on a ship before. So okay. like, uh. that you would typically find. But, yeah. And you can restore that through, I don't know, your anode protection, whatever technology yeah. you've got to do. Yeah. Oh man, that's a hard one. Um, I mean, I think probably I like the idea of recovering the hull like the surviving hull of a shipwreck and and it's associated artifacts because we don't really do that anymore uh, there was a period when that was done so you've got the vasa in sweden you've got the mary rose in the uk um, you've got the roskilde ships in denmark um, you know we're we're complete shipwrecks were brought to the service even well hunley hunley is a good example yeah. of that too but that sort of enterprise is incredibly costly mm. i mean it costs a bundle of money and it's very time-consuming. Uh, you know, you're talking decades in, yeah. many play, in many cases. I mean, the Vasa, which was raised in the 60s, is still being treated now. You the know, the Vasa was the one that fell, uh, was too top-heavy and fell yeah, off in capsized. the bay. Yeah, my parents visited that one. Yeah. Um, beautiful ship, but yeah. the only reason it was recoverable was because it sank immediately and then fell into like a bed of mud that preserved it. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> there's a lot of boats that just don't have that protection yeah, that's to right. it. Yeah. yeah, that's right. I mean... Um, I, I think, you know, and if you can, if you could recover an intact, you know, largely intact shipwreck like mm -hmm. the Vasa, and, and there are examples around uh, worldwide, um, that is a compelling thing because you can see it and you can see how it looked originally. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a lot of the wreck sites I work on, the wooden ones particularly, you know, it's just the bottom of the hull or maybe yeah. some sections, but that's it, you know, and it's hard for people to sort of conceptualize what they're looking at. Um, I mean, luckily we have 3D modeling and, and all sorts yeah, of gizmodry like gaps, that. And we can yeah. go, boop, this is what it looked like. Um, but I think for most people, and particularly people who come to museums, I think there's something really compelling about seeing the thing, the mm -hmm. actual yeah. thing, uh, and being able to see that with your own eyes and go, wow, look at that thing. Um, so... I guess, yeah, in a fantasy world, um, you know, find a, a, you know, relatively intact shipwreck and be able to recover it. Just the whole, the whole, yeah. whole structure. And, and have its artifacts too, you know, everything that's in it and, and tell that story because, yeah. you know, you can, you can do that when you have a whole ship and everything that was in it, um, you know. Uh, and that would be awesome but you're mm. again it's you know that's uh <laughs> pie in the sky type yeah. stuff yeah. you know <laughs> and i mean boats have changed very differently over the epochs right so again maybe yeah. drilling down more on this question if you had to pick one kind of period of time when you can bring back a full mm. boat mm. what would that's it be a great question actually yeah, yeah. <laughs> i mean I, I think probably you know i i'm not a guy who deals with shipwrecks from antiquity mm. you know i'm mostly post you know, 1500, all yeah. the stuff I've done. Um, and of course I have my own deep fascination and, and wrecks from that sort of, you know, 300 or 400 year span. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, it would be kind of cool. I know in the black sea, for example, you know, there are some really old shipwrecks there from, you know, mm -hmm. antiquity that, yeah, if you could recover one of those and, and conserve it and display it, that'd be amazing, you know? Um, so, I guess going a little bit outside my own box, yeah. I'd say, yeah, you know, go, go for that, go for the older, you know, vessel that, you know, we don't have the level of archival documentation related to it. So it could tell us a lot more, I think maybe, um, that, that'd be great. Perfect. All right. We've got two final questions and the same final questions that we asked all our guests. Yep. Well, you're our first one we're asking, by the way. Okay. It's a new thing. We, we yeah. didn't ask our okay. So we sort of, re we sort of changed the, the title after and then started these, but yeah, like yeah. So I'm sure this is a first of maybe let's go. Yeah. I'm the, I'm the guinea pig. This yeah, is fine. Yeah. Okay. So all kind right. of quick, I guess not quick, but like short answers in terms of, um, uh, questions. So one is the first one is what advice would you give to a younger version of yourself? Ah, um, Ooh, I don't know. I've had a pretty good, I've had a good, pretty good path actually. Um, I don't know, maybe volunteer more. Volunteer uh, more. I, I, I did a bit of volunteering, but I probably could have volunteered when I was younger and wasn't married and didn't have a kid and all that mm. stuff. You know, I, I could have traveled more easily and that sort of thing. I, I probably, yeah, uh, could have probably taken more advantage of things like that. Um, yeah, volunteer, get involved, um, try to travel more extensively, I guess. Yeah. Perfect. And then the final, do you want to ask this one, James? Sure, I can do that. So um, what is something that 
I, I reworded this in a specific yeah. way. So like, what is something, and this doesn't have to be about your specific role, but just as someone who works in the science and the STEM field, what is something about the future that both terrifies and excites you? They don't need to be the same thing, by the way. Mm, that one, okay. What is one thing that terrifies you and what is one thing that scares you? Yeah, I, oh, I mean, that inter- inter- you. interpret yeah. the question like, yeah, you can, you can, it can be one that answers both or it can be a separate mm. thing. Um, uh, I'll probably go with the what terrifies me first. Because, um, I mean, I've grown up around the ocean um, and in my lifetime, I have actually seen um, some really... Um, sort of horrific changes honestly uh you know environmental changes particularly yeah. um you know I, I i firmly believe that we are, have got a major crisis brewing and in fact in some respects it's already here yeah um so yeah that worries me a lot uh and well i'll give you an example um i can remember going to a reef in the florida keys when i was about nine years old uh and uh, again you know i was i was a young kid and your mind tends to sort of accentuate things a bit but you know i sort of remember this reef we went to as being something like out of finding nemo you know and like you know all the the sea life are having you know coordinated dances and singing (laughs) and all this um but i went back to that same reef uh around 2006 2007 and it was largely bleached and dead and that was really depressing Mm. uh i just thought wow I cannot believe that. Um, yeah. And I've seen that in my lifetime. So I do worry about that. Um, you know, I, I were and, and the ramifications of that, you know, more broadly, um, not only for my profession, because, uh, you know, we've seen the impacts of, you know, climate change uh, on shipwreck sites. Mm. Um, yeah. You know, where they're, for example, uh, you get a big seagrass die off and the seagrass is what holds the sediment together over the wreck. Right. Uh, that dissipates. All the sediment comes off. The wreck's now exposed and it begins to degrade rather quickly. Um, you know, but that's small potatoes compared to the much yeah. broader implications, which is how is that going to affect, you know, uh, the ecosystem and, and us yeah. and, and everything, not yeah. just us, but the whole system. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, there's that. Um, positive thing. Let's slide out of that bummer. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. <laughs> so um, I think on a more positive note, at least in terms of my profession, um, you know, technology, uh, good or bad, uh, I think a lot of the tech that we're seeing uh, is quite promising mm-hmm. and it's, um, giving uh, not only helping us do our job quicker uh more efficiently and more accurately but in the case of like uh, 3d modeling and virtual reality for example um, it's giving us an opportunity to kind of you know present what we're seeing to people who might otherwise not be able to see a wreck site for example for themselves Um, so here at the museum uh, i've been collaborating with some people at uh, in germany at the university of kaiserslautern yeah and um it's awesome because we do 3d photogrammetry on a rec site uh, and it's this guy's named professor holger deuter and he's got students who develop uh, virtual reality experiences so right. Uh, I send him the 3D modeling, video, imagery, archival information, historical background, that sort of thing. And they take all that as a student project and they generate a virtual reality where it's it's an interactive, you're diving on the rec site. Yeah, and you okay. can look at artifacts and click on stuff and it says, oh, you know, the stoneware jug is blah, 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 blah. And yeah, yeah I've, been one of those, I've been in one of those things yeah. before, not for shipwrecks, but like on a site and they are, and like you can operate stuff and yeah, yeah it's, it's really and cool. So you yeah. take the perspective of the diver, basically like, you know, the, yeah. the diving archaeologist. We have the risks of being and in the, the, yeah. the long training to become a professional, professional diver. diver. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and I think it's, you know, because I I know that there are people out there unfortunately you know they can't dive they can't mm. get in the water um so um or or they don't want to you know because yeah. <laughs> you know, the ocean can be pretty scary <laughs> yeah we're being that's honest. not me so, <laughs> um, so yeah i i think that's great because that 
that gives them at least some sort of conduit to, yeah, to yeah. experience what that. about the sensing side so like being able to use the technology for 3d modeling but getting deeper with sensing equipment because like obviously that stuff's hard but like yeah well i mean the deep ocean now uh maritime archaeology and the deep ocean i think is one of the next big frontiers uh we're already getting there and uh well recently you would have probably heard about the discovery of the montevideo maru up near the philippines um so that was um horrific actually it was a japanese prison ship and it was uh, second world war it was transiting up um to uh japan from papua new guinea and was torpedoed by an american submarine um the American submarine crew didn't realize it had POWs. They thought it was oh, a merchant ship. Uh, right. It was transporting Japanese supplies. Um, and there were uh, over a thousand on Jeez. the ship and they all died. All yep. of them. Um, it was actually, I think it was the one of the largest uh, losses of life for the Australian military ever. Uh, well, that wreck was recently found. It's in over 4,000 meters of water. Um, and... Mm. The imagery that I have seen from that is absolutely stunning. Uh, and yeah. all of that's done remotely. It was yeah. found with an autonomous underwater vehicle uh, that then went back and obtained imagery of the wreck site because the ship actually broke in half as it sank. And so it spread a debris field between oh, the wow. two, the bow half and the stern half. Um, and it was absolutely amazing uh, to to see this and yeah that's the future i mean we have the ability now to get to wrecks in incredibly deep water uh and and map them and and image them and and bring them you know to everyone you know everyone on the surface myself included i mean i I can't dive that wreck it's way too deep humans won't for a very long time be able to get to that pressure so yeah yeah I, i wonder like yeah shipwrecks is one thing but i wonder now that we can get deeper into what we discover that we actually discover more signs of previous life you know like we know so much about dinosaurs and whatnot mm. that that's because it's, it's on the land and we is, can see it pure yeah. hypothetical yeah. yeah is there fossils that are deeper in the, like towards the earth's core i don't know this is i, would, <laughs> well, I wouldn't be surprised i mean yeah, yeah there's there's a lot down there that we simply just don't know and mm. we're now just starting to get to a point where you know we we can find these things and image them and that's really exciting um and yeah, yeah. it's just amazing some of the some of what's down there and the other thing that really i think astounded me was the amount of sea life that turned up in those images because yep. you're thinking you know that depth. over four thousand meters that's really deep but there was stuff down there you yeah know? stuff <laughs> evolved to yeah live under that pressure for yeah. Sure. yeah and we've all seen videos of like a whale fall and just seeing what yeah kind of like ecosystem evolves around a carcass of a whale it's incredible yeah yeah i love seeing that well that's what this was there was it was a fish fall it was um so oh. it was some fish that had landed on the bottom uh, after yeah. dying and there was you know there were fish and um crabs all these other just in this one area where this yeah. where this fish fall is nothing else <laughs> anywhere but that's just amazing because you're thinking where do they all come from yeah. that they find this one isolated little thing so the little know, oasis in the desert in the or the, yeah, yeah massive ocean and it's it is just absolutely amazing uh, yeah and so that's that's really exciting and you know that data that we're acquiring um in maritime archaeology can be shared with people who are studying you know marine yeah. ecosystems and you know uh deep water um you know fish and that sort yeah. of thing and that that's great i mean it, the more sort of exchange we get the better i think yeah yeah, yeah. well thank you very much uh dr james hunter thank you so um, much. really yeah. appreciate um hosting us as well as the sea museum this has been an incredible experience awesome so yeah thank you both this has been great yeah. i really enjoyed it <laughs> thank it's you awesome. so much dr hunter thanks yep.